0: You're listening to Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Janet. Hey everyone, welcome back to Screenwriters Need to Hear This, the podcast. I got another amazing guest today. I'm here with my many, he's been, my next guest has been my boss on many occasions. He's been my friend on one occasion. <laughs> and he's <laughs> here he is. Uh, boy, this guy's got good credits. So this is Dave Krinsky, and he's a feature writer. Show creator, he ran King of the Hill for, what was it, eight years, eight seasons? Were yeah, running? I think
1: maybe seven. I can never quite keep track.
0: Felt like eight, right? He was a showrunner for runner, King of Hill for for many seasons, but a writer. I think you wrote on every single season, didn't you?
1: Yeah, we came in right after the first season had just aired. So right. they were still rewriting and posting season one and starting writing season two.
0: Jumping right in. And then also, we're going to talk about everything, but I want to give you a proper introduction. You wrote, co-wrote with his partner, Blades of Glory. Uh, they ran a show called Lopez, which I, I worked on for a little bit, created, created Silicon Valley. I've heard of that show. Uh, also, uh, The Good Family. That was ABC uh, animated show. Ran Beavis and Butthead for a while. Uh, executive produced a uh, movie called Extract. Um, what, what what else did what you, you do? You did a lot of stuff, man.
1: Blade to Glory. Did you mention did you, that? Wait, I
0: thought I said that. Didn't I not say Maybe that? Maybe you did. I that tuned you out.
1: Boy. I've learned to tune you out early. So. <laughs> But man,
0: oh, man. I, I, I But you also said when we were chatting before we started recording that you did a lot of movie re. I didn't even know you guys did other movie rewrites.
1: Yeah. So when we first came out, this was back, you know, like 90s, you really had to decide where you were a movie writer, or a TV writer. The agents didn't even talk to each other. So we had come out with some movie scripts. We just thought that was sort of the easiest way to break in. Right. And we had ended up selling a couple. We sold one to Warner Brothers. It was uh they bought it for Chevy Chase. Really? And uh yeah, and then we got and they fired. didn't
0: make it up, obviously because they, they didn't make, make it. Guys.
1: We got fired and they hired someone else to rewrite it. And our agent goes, that's great news. And we're like, how's that great news? They go, it's not dead. If they're hiring someone else to rewrite it, and it was kind of an A-list writer, then that means it's still alive. But it ended up not getting made. Although it's sort of been made a few times because it was a very broad idea about a guy who you know how we only use 10% of our brain's potential. Well, these scientists developed a serum that unlocked the other 90% instead of being injected in a, you know, good upstanding citizen like Michael Jam, and it gets injected in this doofus Chevy Chase, who basically becomes this like throbby organism. He's got 10 times the sight, 10 times the hearing, 10 times the athletic ability. So he's trying to like make money and become famous with it. But so he was attached before there was a director or no? So there was never even a director manager. He was attached like Chevy Chase had a deal at like Warner Brothers and Warner was looking for movies for him. So this, and then those days they were buying spec scripts left and right. Right. So they bought that from us and we spent like a long time rewriting it. So he was giving you the notes on what he wanted. No, we never even met with him. I think, you know, I don't even know if you ever heard of it, to be honest. It really was in those days. Uh-huh. If you wanted a Chevy Chase movie, you bought 10 or 12 scripts and you developed them until you found one that you wanted to do and brought to him. So you were dealing um, with his development people. We were just dealing with Warner Brothers.
0: Warner
1: Brothers and the producer. So the way, the way it worked back then, and maybe they still do now, but the spec script market isn't really strong anymore. You would go to your agent with a spec and they go, okay, we're going to send it to X producer who has a deal at Paramount and Y producer who has a good re- relationship with Warner Brothers. And we're going to they're going to go to the studios all on the same weekend and let them know they have to decide. And then hopefully you get at least two offers so that you're playing them against each other. And that particular is really got one from Warner Brothers. So the producer on the project, we never even met until Warner Brothers had bought it. So okay. then the producer, awesome. and it was a weird deal because we actually had a better relationship with the execs at Warner Brothers than we did with the producer. Like we like their notes better. So it's a weird political dynamic that you had to deal with. But um, we ended up selling a couple of projects that way that didn't get made. Um, but ultimately when Blades of Glory got made, then it was a ton of rewrite work, Um mm-hmm. And if, wait, this, is, this was during King of the Hill? Blades of Glory was during King of the Hill. I mean, we were doing our movie stuff before King of the Hill started. And and we started looking around. You know, we sold stuff. But we weren't we – were, John and I were still sharing an apartment in Burbank. And I was driving a car with no air conditioning. And I looked over at some of my buddies, like Bill Martin, who was, like, buying a house and buying a nice car. And those guys were all on TV. And John and I were like, mm, maybe we should in- – I mean, we always wanted to do TV. But our agents us, you know, you're movie writers. So we ended up writing some TV spec scripts and then ended up getting a job in TV. But so we were writing spec scripts. We would get assignments occasionally, or we would pitch on something, but it wasn't until blaze of glory that really was like, okay, now we're getting a ton of movie rewrite.
0: And then how did you know Bill Martin? Did you go to to college with him?
1: Yeah, we went to college together. So it was weird. It was like, it was me, John, Bill, Peyton Reed, who directed all the Ant-Man movies, this guy, John Schultz, who directed like Mike and, uh, it's like we all kind of moved out here at the same time to try to pursue the business.
0: Wow, I didn't even know that.
1: And then, well, so what's
0: your? When did you decide that you wanted to be a writer, like in high school or something?
1: Pretty much. I mean, I, I. This is making me sound really cool. Uh, but I loved reading as a kid. I loved, you know, books, and I just loved when a story really impacted me and made me think I was like, wow, that's a cool sort of power to have over people to influence them that way. So since the time. I was like twelve, thirteen. I thought about it, and then in high school we had to write a short story for an English class, and I wrote this kind of science fiction, funny story. And the teacher, you know, wrote A plus. What are you going to do with this gift? And I was like, Oh, I guess it actually could be a job, right? But you, so, did you think
0: that it could be a job? Like I, I didn't—that didn't occur to me until I was older that you could make money in TV.
1: Well, you know what? I was thinking I'd be a book writer, and uh-huh. so I went to Carolina because I knew they had a strong English department. I took all the creative writing classes there, and since i didn't want to really do anything else i took whatever course i find so screenwriting was one playwriting was one and um that's i met john and my partner and, and david palmer who i worked with out here a bit wow oh, you were um,
0: serious about it did you have to apply to those programs
1: you know? yeah no i mean I, I was in the i got accepted to the honors program which is what i had applied for and because of that i got to get into some of the writing classes i wouldn't have had access to anyway so this was all or nothing for you i mean you really i mean there was no plan B. Well, I, you know, my mom was always like, don't you go to law school, you have something to fall back on. <laughs> but I knew if I had something to fall back on, I'd probably fall back on it, uh-huh. you know? And, and it took us a while to get, to, you know, really established point I could get rid of that crappy car with no AC, AC and the apartment with no AC. But if I had had the ability or the degree to do anything else, I probably would have bailed on the writing dream earlier.
0: Right. Wow. And then, and then, so eventually you decided to move into TV and then how, i know how did you get your first gig
1: so we decided to move to the we wrote a couple of spec scripts and i think it was bill martin who said oh you should meet carolyn strauss over at hbo and carolyn of course was you know at the vanguard of starting hbo when it was yeah which so he he's
0: setting up meetings for you like he's like your agent now bill
1: no it really was one of those things where it was like we're like hey we want to get into tv doing he goes oh well you should meet Kellen Strauss, we like her. She's really cool. And I think he might've told her, oh, you should meet these guys. And so we had a general with her. And it was a good lesson is like, you know, I think we always had something to pitch. We always knew a general, everybody, you know, wants something. I can't remember if we pitched anything too specifically or not. Because in movies, you always want to pitch an idea. Sometimes in TV, it really is just a general to see what, you know. But, you know, it was a great meeting and nothing came of it. And then like nine months later, we got a call from her and she goes, look, we're doing a show um the showrunner really wants movie guys doesn't want like just tv sitcom guys wow. and i thought of you guys would be look, look look at the pilot they shot a pilot and they sent the pilot over it was a black and white period single camera show david ledman was the executive producer adam resnick was the showrunner the creator and it was awesome it was like the cohen brothers really dark funny and we were like yeah so she set up a call with us we talked to adam for like an hour and a half mostly about good fellas and the godfather and just movies um and then they called us up across, goes, look will you the shows in new york will you move there and we're like yeah we'll move there she goes, okay three or four days can you move and we're like yeah what do we, we don't have i, I don't even think we got a plant in our place you know our fresh food so we so moved you, to new york and you got out of your rent you or do you
0: remember we that?
1: sublet because oh, okay. <laughs> it was a uh, I think it was a 10 episode order that became an eight episode order, which is now, you know, the norm, but then it was like, okay, so we're only going to be there probably nine months of production. So I figured why give up our place. Do you think if
0: it wasn't a good show, you would have taken, if it was a bad show, you would have taken the author?
1: Oh, that's a good question. You know, probably not, you know, before this happened, we were in the movie biz. We we had a meeting with Pauly Shore right and Polly's manager was in the meeting and his manager was a gentleman named Michael Rotenberg mm-hmm. who is now my manager and and Michael and and Sievert have you know Sometimes he's our help with them and he was an executive was on King of the Hill so this was before King <coughs> of the Hill even and we pitched Polly the, the new line wanted to do a movie where Polly basically they sounded you they wanted him to be a nanny and we pitched like sound of music with Polly going around Europe and Polly was as insulting and 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 just not a good collaborator he he was say, hey who are these greasy weasels and you know he just goes no just turn the camera on and i'll be funny and we're like okay but john i think had like 93 dollars in his bank account i might have had a little bit more and they offered it to us and we were like this could be our career path that we don't want to be on and we turned it down so i think it was a crappy show we probably would have turned it down too
0: Right. Wow, you turn it down. Cause I you know, now you I think now you take anything you
1: can get. <laughs> yeah, well certainly not you, but
0: one, what one does, right?
1: And it's not a bad it's not bad advice, you gotta get in the game, you know. So um we had already been in the game just enough that it wasn't like we were completely unknown. We had anything produced, so we certainly weren't a hot commodity. Right. But we really felt like, oh, this could just pigeonhole us. And it was interesting because our agent was like, Okay, if you don't want to do it fine but we don't really want to be rude and turn it down. So we're going to ask for way more money than they'll ever pay you. Right. So they went and asked for I don't know, like $400,000 and they were furious anyway. They're like, who the <laughs> hell do you think you are? asking this money? And we're like, sorry, we just don't want to do it, so.
0: Right. How funny. Did you, were you, <clears throat> when you first got on King of the, or well, I guess not, well, I guess, you know, on Resnick's show, were you, did you, did you find it over, you were in over your head? I mean, that's how I felt when we started.
1: Oh yeah because I was always that one of those writers and I'm sure there's plenty like that. I'm like, I don't, even in college, we had to like give your, your scripts or your stories to people to read. I'm like, I don't want to do this, you know, because I just didn't have the confidence or faith in myself. So we got to New York and we were working at a letterman's theater and Adam's great. I mean, he is the nicest guy. i a just super small staff. There's a John and I, this other team, and this guy, Vince Calandra. Right. And um, I just remember like sitting in the writer's room, not saying a word, because I was like, I don't want to say the wrong thing and look like an idiot. And and in all honesty, when I got to King of the Hill, I looked around, and I was like, I recognize names from seeing him on the Simpsons and you know, Mike Judge, of course. And I was inhibited there too. And I barely pitched, I think for the first couple of months I was there.
0: Really? And then what was the moment when you felt like you could, you could test the waters?
1: Well, what happened was I was just hanging out enough. Like, so in the lunchroom, you know, I got to be friendly with people and people go out for a drink and then it suddenly was a social thing and I was comfortable in that and I could start being funny that way. So that by the time I got back to the room after a couple of months, it was kind of like, oh, I was just bull, bullshitting with my friends, you know, and it was much easier to pitch because right. it felt safer.
0: I'll say because I remember in we had some interns where people would sit in. Uh, and i'm like how do they get over their fear of pitching when they haven't been hired as a writer
1: (laughs) yeah i mean and it's a good question for young writers and and i'm teaching a class down at chapman now and and i'm like it's a tricky situation when you're a new writer you want to talk because you want to prove you're Mm -hmm. worthy but if you talk too much or talk poorly it doesn't do you any good and it really in my opinion as a showrunner i would rather you be quiet and Sort of take it all in and pitch very occasionally, then feel like you've got to pitch stuff that ends up derailing the room.
0: You know, I, I totally agree with the one thing I've said because I think a new, let's say there's 10 writers in a room and a staff writer often thinks, well, I better speak a tenth of the time because I'm there's 10 people here, but they're not getting paid a tenth. They're not getting paid as much as the co executive. They don't have to contribute as much, you know?
1: Yeah, and it's not expected. Like I've seen plenty of horrible showrunners who are punitive and you know, they don't make it easy for a staff writer and they're happy to fire a staff writer every season and try someone else. Um, But John, I've always been like, look, we're going to bring you on board. We're going to be patient with you. You know, it's like, it's not an easy position to be in. And and when you're a showrunner, all you want is someone to make your life easier. And if a staff writer makes your life easier one time in a season, it's almost like, okay, you know what? I got something out of you. Great.
0: What about that leap from, because I was there for that. You were I guess it was season six he started running it. Is that right?
1: Yeah, six seven was our first official year running it, really.
0: What was it like for you making the – because, you know, everyone – you always think, I could do this job. I could do the job better than my boss. And then you become the boss, and you're like, wait a minute. (laughs) This is hard.
1: Yeah. Well, I remember when on that Resnick show, there was a consultant there, and he told us, he goes, the punishment for writing well is producing. And it's like, you know, you work your way up and you become a producer and suddenly, yeah, you're managing people. You're dealing with all the politics, the budget. Um, and I think the, the biggest thing that happened to me was we were working and I can't remember if you were in the room or not. Do you remember Collier's episode about that Michael Keaton did with the pig, the pigs are yeah,
0: I was there for probably we probably got there for the animatic part of it. So we did not okay. break it.
1: Okay. So it was a really weird story and Collier a yes. great writer, but this was one that was troubled from the get go just because it was so bizarre. <laughs> yes. And, and I remember we were working super late trying to get to it. And and I think Richard Pell was running the the show at that point and he and yeah. Greg were developing a show and they left the room and everybody left the room. There was like four of us in there. And I think Greg or Richard, Dave, you get on the computer and I, in King of the Hill, the room, it wasn't like a conference room. It was like a big, almost like living room with a yeah. scattered furniture and one person sat there it kind of ran the room. We didn't have the screen showing the script, which I never liked anyway. And I was like, I don't think I can run a room. Mm -hmm. And I got up there and I was just like, you know, I just did what I had to do. And I remember we, you know, spent a few hours. It was late night and we kind of like gave the script to Rich and Greg and they came and go, this is great. This is working. And it was like, Oh geez. So I guess I can do it. Right. Um, So when we took over the show, yeah, I mean, it definitely was like you – so many things were harder than you would think, but some were easier, too. I remember the other showrunners before we run the show would come back from pitching the stories to the network, and they go, well, we sold six out of seven of them, so, you know, it wasn't easy. And then when we started pitching to the network, you know, the show had been on for six years. They were like, okay, good. It was like, oh, this isn't that hard. Right. The hard parts were, you know, managing the budget, managing people, managing writers, dealing with the network – how much budget were you dealing with? Like, what were
0: How you, big was it? I, like, well, no, I mean, like, what, what exactly were you doing? You know, oh. yeah, because I, I don't really touch the when we were running stuff. We don't really touch the budgets,
1: but what do you think? Oh, like- so I mean, first, there was the writer's budget, which okay, every year exactly. was like, yeah, okay, like, who can we afford to pay? Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, a lot of it, you'll remember our, our line producer, McJimsey would walk in and be like, you know what? Last episode had a football crowd, and this episode, you want to do you know whatever a, a crowd scene at the school we can't afford that the budget won't right you know so a lot of it was making creative decisions based on the limitations although it's so funny in animation because we would do like a big you know hank football we do a big football episode with a lot of people in the crowd and James would be like okay this is really straining the animators we can't do another big one next week so next week we'd go look this is a very simple episode it mostly takes place in the house it's a very personal story between hank and bobby and He's like Ooh, that's going to strain the animators. It's going to yeah. require a lot of acting. <laughs> I'm yeah. Like, okay. So wait, we can't do anything. <laughs>
0: there's always a reason. That's right. There's always a reason why you're going to ruin the show. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. So and now um and then so what ha- so then after King of the Hill, which you guys did for many years, then it went down and they then went down for I was probably a couple of years it went down.
1: Right. I don't I remember, remember if it was a couple of years because yeah. So the show did not get picked up. Right. And then. They moved John and I and Clarissa, our assistant, onto the lot into this crummy little office to finish posting the shows. Right. And so we were there posting the shows, and we never left. I mean, by the time we we, it's not like we were like home and done. Before we left there, they they picked the show up again for another run.
0: What was the thinking behind canceling and then picking it up again?
1: Like, why? From from what I hear, Uh it's so you know. Fox network ran the show 20th century Fox was the studio who owned the show.
0: Right.
1: And apparently the, the heads of the studio got big bonuses when they got new shows on the air that were successful. So they weren't making a ton of money personally, personally. And the other thing, apparently the owned and operated, because everything was syndicated, you know, in those days, the package was so high for them to pay as the show got on, that they were like, wow, we got to renegotiate this deal. So when everybody started renegotiating, it seemed like, okay, let's not do it. And then ultimately, I bet it was Ari Emanuel fought for because he was always fighting for it. Um, But, or maybe it was Rodenberg, but yeah, it's it's whatever. They just decided, okay, they made a deal and picked us back up again.
0: And at that point, it was a a lot of new writers. Well, most of the writers had moved on, but you were still on the show. So the because you kind of restarted. The staff was almost, as I remember, it was almost almost brand new. There's only a couple pre- previous writers. Like Christy Stratton was there.
1: I think Christy was there. Kit was there. Kit Bosch, Garland Testa. Oh, Garland
0: was there. Sure. Okay.
1: Yeah. So there was definitely a core group. I remember, like, I can't remember if Tony and Becky came on. Right. Um. Right. I don't remember if that was before that or not. So I think enough people, it might have been like nowadays there's not really a staffing season, but I think it might have been during a non staffing season that enough people hadn't landed somewhere that we could get. Right. Back. right and then after that you guys did the good family yeah so that was another you know people wanted an animated show from us we had you know we'd gotten very close to mike on king of the hill so started working together a lot with him um and we had this the show the good family about a very uh you know pc family sort of the opposite of hank hill um and i just remember you know everybody's like okay take it to fox and it'll run for forever and it was just like we just wanted to do things differently and uh mrc an independent you know studio came out came after us pretty hard and said no we want to do this deal we can finance it and and you can have a better upside and more freedom and okay. um so we decided to do it and we pitched it around and abc just made such a hard press for it
0: Wow! And,
1: and yeah and it turns out they weren't the best partners simply because they didn't have any animation on they right. put us on with a really bad animated show like after wipe out or something it was just like not a good fit so but it ends up you know the bottom fell out of the industry right after that. Because Rodenberg would call us up and goes you know your numbers would be a top 10 show like within two years right we would have been like fine but at that moment just wasn't good enough numbers
0: and then and then came then they brought back beavis and butthead which you guys ran which was so interesting because that was a whole different experience that was that was all freelance that's why you guys called us hey you want to write a Beavis and butthead we're like yeah we'll do that
1: yeah. yeah i mean who wouldn't want to have yeah. an opportunity right yeah so mike so they have always begging mike to bring it back and he was always like Yeah, the situation has to be right and he just felt like the timing was right and he had some stories he wanted to tell and he loves doing them i mean yeah. you know as he always said king of the hill requires a ton of effort for a little bit of output beavis requires a little bit of input for a ton of output you know people just love it and it's funny yeah. um so yeah so i mean the budgets weren't super high and we couldn't license music anymore i mean and when mike originally did it it was all music videos because mtv owned all those videos right but the world had changed so suddenly we were doing jersey shore and and a lot of other like reality shows because that was the only sort of material we could get Mm -hmm. um yeah but but
0: we did did like because i remember we brought you guys brought us in there's a there's a woman a couple women Detroit, it was so cold in the D. They had a song, it's so cold in the D.
1: Cold in the D, yeah.
0: And I don't remember how it happened, but I, I think I commented on on her, maybe on her YouTube channel or something. I go, this is a great song. And she went, went nuts. She's like, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> so yeah, sweet. it
1: was a weird sort of viral head, I think almost before things really went viral. And it was just like a homemade video about, you know, living in Detroit and, uh, and how did and you my- find all that stuff? Mike had found it and just thought it was really funny and really interesting. And so he was
0: just surfing the internet looking for like real cheap stuff that he could get.
1: I don't even think it was like with an eye toward Beavis, but he also was in this little network of like Knoxville and Spike Jones. They all like send each other stuff. So I don't know where he got it from, but I think he just saw it. And and, and you know what? I, I don't know, he's never said, but that might've been the impetus to bring Beavis back. Where he's just like, oh my God, they would have so much fun with this.
0: Hey, it's Michael Jammin. If you like my videos and you want me to email them to you for free, join my watch list. Every Friday, I send out my top three videos. These are for writers, actors, creative types. You can unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm not going to spam you. And it's absolutely free. Just go to michaeljammin.com slash watch list. And then, okay, so then what, what came after that?
1: so yeah blades of glory was in the middle of the king of the hill era um and then i guess uh silicon valley really would be the the next big thing that
0: that okay how did you guys come up with that idea which is a pretty big hit
1: yeah so that was uh an interesting confluence of events where mike had been in talks with hbo they really wanted to do something with him and scott rudin wanted to do something in sort of the gaming space um So they were sort of circling around this tech world, and Mike's like, "I'm not a gamer; I don't know that well." But Mike was an engineer, you know, electrical engineer, so he knew, you know, that world well. Yeah. um But John was reading the the Steve Jobs book by Walter Isaacson and saw this quote in the book where it's like Bill Gates was making fun of Steve Jobs because he can't even code.
0: Yeah.
1: So John had this idea because well, that's a really funny world, and his his brother was an electrical engineer, so he knew that world as well and uh you know so we pitched the, uh an idea to mike doing something that Mike "Well, oh, i would love to do that so then when we pitched it to hbo they were like yeah this sounds great So Right. so you wrote the pilot shot it and you were and then like what people don't understand is like the process
0: for shooting a pilot or you know and, like it's a big deal it's like a lot of work like even casting is a lot of work
1: yeah and it, it was a lot of work and and you know, there was a lot of rounds. I mean, I have to, you know, really, HBO was pretty high on it. Even after our first draft, it felt like it was going to move in the right direction. And I do remember them calling him and saying, okay, we want to shoot a pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had just done a show for Nat Geo before this, where the right. budgets, the budgets was, you know, very low. I can't remember what they were, but so HBO calls me, you know, look, the pilot's got a, the budget's got to have like a four or five in front of it. And we're like, 400 500 grand pound, but we can probably do it it's like no no no, four or five million, million. <laughs> and they they actually forced us to go up to silicon valley to shoot for a few days bring the whole company up and we're like there's nothing up there we can shoot this in la you know and we ended up shooting like on the side of a freeway we had a couple of establishing shots of google and facebook and right. and stuff but you know hbo does things and they want it to be authentic so you know all the credit in the world to them right um and then, yeah, then when we did an edit, it was interesting because the pilot to Silicon Valley has a very big subplot of these two women in L.A. who are tired mm-hmm. of the L.A. scene and they go up to Silicon Valley because the guys are rich and nice and, and nerdy um, and they meet our heroes in the first episode. And H.P. was like, yeah, you know, we don't want this storyline. We don't think we need it. So those poor actresses got cut out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, yeah. Pressuring yeah through. it's gotta be, gotta be tough to see a show be that successful and you and you were cut out of it yeah, yeah. What,
0: now when you i know you, you teach at chapman it's so interesting because some people are like is film school worth it it's like it depends on who you get as your teacher like honestly it's like it, you know uh and i'm sure they're very lucky to have you what do you you know what is it what's it like with these kids you know what are you teaching them what do you, where are they coming from i guess
1: yeah. So the class is uh, writing for adult animation. So, you know, half hour animators like King of the Hill and, and, and things like that. But, you know, as you well know, writing for animation is very similar to writing for anything. You know, it, it really is. You still need your three act structure and everything. You can just go a little crazier with, with things. Um, and yeah, I asked them all you know, beginning because it, a lot of people still ask me, is it worth going to film school? Mm-hmm. Look, film school is expensive. If you can afford it, it's not a bad thing and i think what these kids are getting and i said kids but a lot of them are in their 20s i think one's in his 30s wow. um they're writing constantly someone's making to it that's good they're in la so they're exposed to people you know not pam or something but like me who have done it in the business we're not just academics who have published books about things you know and and you know you know brian behar's down there there's a bunch of jill connor there's a bunch of people down there who have, like done stuff and last week or the other day Damon, the guy who did La La Land, I can never say his last name in Whiplash. Yeah. He was speaking tonight, Austin Butler speaking. Like they just have a ton of people coming through. So you have exposure to all these people who have done things. You also have connections that, you know, if you don't go to film school, you just have to move to LA and try to, you know, try to build yourself. Um, So yeah, so I think it's it's a good thing if you can afford it. If you can't afford it, it's not... It's not worth stretching to do it because, you know, we moved to LA and we started networking and meeting people and kept writing and, you know, that's really how most people do it. Do you feel you have to beat misconceptions out of them? Or you, you know, I think this is my first class and I'm teaching second year grad students, mm-hmm. so they're fairly savvy. Okay, Um, I think they've been exposed to it enough that there's not a ton of misconceptions, but there are. Big gaps in their knowledge, just you know, as it would be with anybody who, who hasn't been in the business. So, look, I teach them sh- things about structure, things about character, things they've probably heard before, but in ways that you know, I Here's mistakes I've made before. You know, having a scene have to carry double duty in a half-hour show is really difficult because you have to change gears within the middle of a scene. You know, keep it simple. So things like that. I teach them, but they definitely light up more to my more anecdotal stories like what's it like to be in the room what's it like to work for a showrunner who's you know marginalizing you what i remember i talked to the day i go yeah so we have this if come deal and i could say i go wait do you know what an if come deal is and they're like no i was like oh, okay well let me explain that so right
0: um, what are you telling about the showrunners who who who
1: marginalize you what's your what's your advice on
0: that i want to hear it
1: yeah uh you know it's just tough i mean i just keep stressing to them that most showrunners are under so much pressure and stress all they want is someone to make their life easier Mm -hmm. so you know the better you can do that you know the better off you'll be and sometimes it's uncomfortable but you need like you you, well I guess you weren't there at the beginning but the king of the hill you know Greg was running the show and he had so many things going on so he was barely in the room so you didn't really know what he wanted, you know, if your story was going to work. So if you saw him in the break room or saw him in the hallway, you would be like, hey, Greg, this is what we're doing. You know, you try to get feedback from him. So that's what I tell them. I go, do get as much from the showrunner as you can. And some of them won't give you anything because they're not rooting for you to succeed. But get as much as you can from them when you can, because it doesn't do you any good to try to figure out what they're doing. I mean, you have to do that to some level. The more you know, what they want and that's why i tell these you know these kids are doing beat sheets and outlines i'm like be as specific as you can don't cheat yourself because i'm going to read stuff you gloss over and go oh i guess they know what they're doing right. and then when you give me a script i'm like wait what if you had done that in your outline i could have pointed it out at that stage
0: right exactly and when you say it's because when you say uh you know you just help the showrunner out like to me what i want as a showrunner what i, I just wanted a draft that doesn't need a page one rewrite that's how i feel I mean, is that what you're talking about?
1: Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, or look, if you're someone who can, who can, you know, have the joke or the story fix in the room that gets you all home sooner then that's fine too. I mean, you know, I mean, at King of the Hill, we had such a big staff, it's an animated show. There were people who turned in great drafts. There were people who weren't great draft fighters, who were great in the room, you right. know? So in those days you could build a big enough team that you know, you could have a pinch hitter and a utility field or a designated hitter. Now the staffs are so small, you really do want someone. But you're right. I mean, to get that draft that mm-hmm. needs a ton of work, you're like, okay, this sets us back so much on everything else. Now we can't now I can't be in the editing room. Now right. we can't push that next week's story forward. It's like now we got to dig in on this one. And and what what I
0: mean, that's exactly yeah, that's exactly the panic that I I, I used to feel. But what did you? what is the advice? Like, because the industry is really changing so fast now. Like, what is the advice you give these kids getting out of uh, film school in order to get into the business?
1: Yeah, look, it's tough. You know, I always try not to be too negative about it because it's always been tough. It's just tough in a different way. Um, You know, what I tell them is, like, look, the movie business is extraordinarily difficult. Mm -hmm so if you want to be a movie writer that's fine but you know i urge them like tv seems to be a cleaner path yeah. it used to be with movies at least you could write a spec you had some control Where tv you had to hope somebody hired you so now you know i say look if you have a good movie idea think about it as a series because yeah. you know a-list actors are all doing tv you know there's a there's, a, and obviously tv isn't isn't a great state right now with just the quality of it yeah um But yeah, I mean, you really do just have to, the basics are right, 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 and network. You got to be in LA. You got to be hitting all the places because you never know. Look, that meeting with Carolyn Strauss we had, look, it was a good meeting. It wasn't like, ah, we've made it. We've met Carolyn Strauss. And it wasn't until nine months later that something came of it.
0: Right, right. So it's really about getting in those circles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I remember people say this all the time. Do I have to be in LA? I'm like, you don't have to do anything you don't want. But, uh, you know, this is where the fish swim, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the thing is, and I think you've probably said before, it's like the material doesn't really speak for itself. Uh-huh. Like in movies it used to, like a good spec script would find, you know, a, a buyer. You know, now there's very few ideas that someone's going to go, well, I don't care who this comes from, I want to do it, you know? And there's there's very few scripts that are good enough that any anybody's going to be like, I'm going to put this on the air. It happens, they are out there. But the m- vast majority of the time, it's... I've been hanging out, I've been going to, you know, Upright Citizens Brigade. I've been going, oh, I've been helping on a student film. Right. Hey, that kid I helped out is now on the desk at UTA. Does UTA mm-hmm. even exist anymore? I don't know, um, you know, at right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's CAA. <laughs> and it's like, you know what? He wants to be an agent, so he's trying to hustle. So he's gonna yeah. hand the script over to, and suddenly you have a meeting, you know, with an agent, a real agent. So that's how it mo- mostly happens. And you gotta be in LA for that.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's how I feel.
1: Yeah.
0: So what? And I know you're also. Oh, I want to mention your your book. Is you you and John, your partner, are of the like of all the writing teams I've known, even writers I've known. Like you guys are the most entrepreneurial. It seems like you like you know nothing. There's a there's a path to do it, and then there's always like, well, let's figure out how else we can do <laughs> it. You know, you're always like uh, the hustle doesn't end, and no. it's create. It's always like creating opportunities for yourself.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly, and John's much much better at that than I mean he has a very entrepreneurial spirit and I enjoy it though I like doing things differently but he's very innovative in the way he thinks he's been in Europe for for covid and for a lot of that just you know kicking the tires in the international market and making some headway there but like I remember like a couple of years ago we hooked up and we were producing this writer who had um done a academy award docu- uh, nominated documentary and he had a half hour sitcom and he was um um it, it was crip camp so he was in a wheelchair and it was a the character was about his story It was a really cool story and Obama's company was attached to it and it was like this is a great I mean it's a great script great project you know and we go to Netflix a zoom pitch and they literally were like this but as soon as the camera came on you're like okay, hey, this isn't going to be a sale mm-hmm. I mean we knew it from the get-go good lesson is you still pitch your heart out because you don't want to ever have to blame yourself if they don't buy it they don't buy it but and so I was like, what? You know, it's a great project. Everything was great about it, but you don't know what they want. And you just have so little control. So as we say, like shopping around town with our briefcase full of wares like Willie Loman is just not an appealing thing. So, you know, John had met this, this Irish <laughs> actor, a guy named Richie Stevens, and he was pitching a friend's story and you know that story wasn't quite hooking john and then richie started telling him about his own life and he was a recovered alcoholic drug addict gangster right and he's like oh, that's interesting. me i want you to meet dave so we all sat down together like i just had a fascinating life a fascinating story We're like that's a great story to tell right and um and it was john's idea too he was like richie you did the 12 steps of you know recovery and he goes yeah he goes, let's tell your story in 12 steps and that lends itself to a very nice TV show.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But we were like, do we really want to go pitch a TV show? And so we said, you know what, if we could write this as a book, because it lends itself to a book really well, 12 chapters, the 12 right. steps. And I always wanted to write a book from the time I was 12, you know. Um, but then we'd have an IP. And Hollywood loves an IP, you know. They love it if you it's you still had to pitch it as a book. I mean, you still have to pitch because you had to pitch yeah. it as a book. Yeah, it's not like that's an easy path either. Yeah. But... Look, we had been out here long enough. We knew, you know, Jake Steinfeld, body by Jake, who had published several successful books. He goes, well, let me introduce you to my book agent. She publishes a lot of nonfiction authors. We pitched to her. She said, okay, this is a good hook. I think I can sell it. She turned around and sold it to a publisher. So then, you know, then we wrote the book, which took a while, but it's like now we have a book, which is an IP, which we can set up. and We have much more control over it. Yeah. And we're making very really good headway in setting it up as a TV show now.
0: Right, because you bring you bring more to the table. This is why we say, "What else can you bring to the table?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I uh, yeah, and it was an interesting read. I re- yeah, read it. Wonderful. So, yeah, I give give you guys a lot of credit, a lot of credit, a lot of hustle.
1: Well, look, a lot of it comes from boredom, and and in all honesty, there's certain things we can do because of our track record. So when I'm advising like younger am like, "Well, this won't necessarily work for you," right? But. You really do i mean the business has become so consolidated it's a it's a weird it's also a weird business where like almost the quality or success of the entertainment doesn't matter i mean apple's trying to sell Mm -hmm. you know iphones amazon's trying to sell everything else in the world so it doesn't have the same sort of metric as it used to when you were pitching a show so it's difficult but you know like i met this young writer and she wrote a script i really liked a lot Mm-hmm. And you know, we tried to set it up around town, didn't have a ton of luck. And then we learned she has dual citizenship, I guess triple citizenship from Belgium and from France. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, an American writer who's got, you know, some talent who can go over to the EU and tap into the money over there with their subsidies because she has a is a huge thing. So now we're making headway on that. Right. So there's a lot of different angles that anybody starting out might have access to that they can do instead of really just waiting for an agent or a writer or a studio to notice them.
0: Right. Right. Stop begging. Stop begging and start making making things happen yourself. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: I think so. Well tell what well, tell us uh, tell them one the name of that that book so they can find it on Amazon.
1: It's called The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety. Yeah. He's a charming fella. Like Yeah, of, you know, he's a real Irishman with the Irish accent and uh, like if you read the book, I mean, he did some horrible things and he's always like shocked that people are nice to him because of the horrible things he's done. But he's also a very gentle, sweet guy. He was just, a, he was an addict and, and right. he made a lot of bad decisions from there, but, right, um, but yeah, he's a good guy.
0: It's a good story. Yeah. A lot of good stories. Dave Krinsky, I'd give you a hug. If you I want one. <laughs> if you weren't on Zoom. Thank um, you so much. Thank you. Is there anything, any other parting words that we can get from you or anything, any other wisdom? Is that, or we tap, do we tap you at?
1: I don't know about wisdom, but I know that uh, you know a lot of people are are tuning into you and checking your stuff out. And I just remember at King of the Hill, we worked on a bunch of shows. Like you were always the fastest guy in the room. I was always just so amazed. And and jokes never translate. It was your joke, so you'll sound like an idiot. But I just still remember we're all sitting in the writers' room, and someone comes in and says oh, I was down in Century City and I saw that Bewitched movie with uh, Will Ferrell and Nicole Kidman. Yeah. And they go, how was it? He goes, well, I didn't really get to see it all because there was a fire alarm and the fire department came, came in and you yell, everybody out. There's a bomb on the screen.
0: <laughs> I don't remember that. I have no memory of that at all.
1: <laughs> my other my I've... other favorite memory of King of the Hill was you remember sitting in that back chair mm-hmm. digging a hole?
0: Yes. And I have I was... got a picture of it. That was... I'll explain for the for, the, for our viewers so we had right so there was a while on King of the Hill when we were working like 20 hours a day and I felt like a hostage and I had this one big chair that had big wooden legs on it and I took um like a thumbtack and I started digging a hole like in the straw redemption redemption like I was digging a hole out of that and then and it took it took months to finally when I finally broke through I put a picture of Rita Hayworth on it so you wouldn't see him as digging. And this is ballsy for a new guy because I was like, you know, I was destroying furniture and I was telling everyone that I was not happy to be there 20 hours a day.
1: Well, the thing was, was, we we all kind of bought into this fantasy that when you broke through, we'd be free. Right. And it was so depressing when you broke through and we were like. We're all still all right, back to work <laughs>
0: i i remember garland was particularly interested in it she's like well you know because she was like what are you gonna get through how <laughs> <laughs> that funny that's so i'm, I'm glad you're reminding that because i forget everything uh that's the the advantage of working with people is they can remind you of these stories i don't remember any of that i don't remember that Nicole, <laughs> be yeah, very, <laughs> yeah
1: that was very funny but no uh, yeah this was a pleasure and I, uh, I love what you're doing. And I think, you know, you're giving information to people. That's kind of hard to get in real life. You can learn craft, you can learn certain things, but you have so much input that's useful on a day-to-day level for aspiring writers. So good on you. Thank you so much, Dave Krinsky. Thank you again.
0: And uh, pleasure to see you everyone. So yeah, uh, stay tuned. We got more episodes coming up next week. Thanks. And, uh, yeah, we have, uh, what else we got? We got a free webinar. Uh, once a month, sign up for that on my website, com, and uh, my free newsletter, uh, all good stuff. Go to com and you can find it. All right, everyone, thank you so much. This has been an episode of Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jammin and Phil Hudson. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing this podcast with someone who needs to hear today's subject. For free daily screenwriting tips, follow Michael on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at michaeljamminwriter. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook and TikTok at Phil Hudson. This episode was produced by Phil Hudson and edited by Dallas Crane. Until next time, keep riding.